Well, we know that God's Word never, uh, never comes back void. We know there's power in the Word of God, and there's power in, in His Holy Spirit. Um, in particular this morning, I feel like this sermon has the potential to really impact lives. The title of the message is Forgiven Much with a Question Mark, Loving Much with a Question Mark. And we're going to unpack that. And I want to begin this morning reading a scripture passage. It's found in Matthew 22, verses 34 through 40. And it says this, But when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered themselves together. One of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him. Teacher, which is the greatest, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. Okay, so... First, these two things, loving God and loving others, are essentially two sides of one coin. If you do one, you cannot help but do the other. And so this command, and Jesus does say they they are commandments. These are not just suggestions or, or good ideas. They're not simply ideals to talk a lot about, but they're commandments. They're commands. They're not optional. They're not just desired things. In fact, this is a way of life. It is the way of Christian living. The most simple and yet the most profound of all truths. And Jesus, in fact, says that uh, all the law and the prophets depend upon these. In the King James Version, it says, these two commandments hang upon, I'm, I'm sorry, on all these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. So to put it another way, All of Christianity can be stilled down to this practical application. And now I think if we're honest with ourselves, and I don't think I'm just speaking for me, we probably don't love others all that well a lot of the time. I think if I asked you to rate yourselves on how you loved God, I think all of us would say that we love God. If I said, do you love God? We'd say, yes, I love God well. And I think we'd we'd rate ourselves pretty highly in our love for God. But I think the real life gut check on that, how well you are loving others, may betray that truth. Or, in particular, how well do you love your enemies? And so this morning, I have a bit of an ambitious goal. I want to present the gospel in all, the, in all its fullness and in all its beauty and in all its simplicity. And I want to look at what I believe is the number one biggest obstacle to living a life of freedom and learning to truly love others. And that is unforgiveness. It's grounded firmly in pride. One thing, really, because all of sin has its root in pride. And so I want to sort of give you a framework here, and everything we're going to talk about will sort of fit within this framework. If Jesus calls us to love God with every part of ourselves, with our affection and our intention, with our intellect, with our emotion, 
And then as a result of that, he wants us to love others well. In fact, even our enemies in a way that provides unimaginable freedom. I submit to you that the reason we don't love much very often is that we are unable to forgive. And I think the reason that we're unable to forgive is because we do not fully understand or embrace the power of the gospel. I think if we don't live out forgiveness, it's because we don't understand the forgiveness we ourselves have been given. You see, I think we think that God forgives the same way we forgive. That, that he forgives us, but he's ready at a moment's notice to bring up all our sins to indict us the moment we make a mistake. Because we remember our sins all too well. And so I think it's important, first, that we understand that the good news is that when Jesus died for your sins, the Bible says that God not only forgives our sins when we repent and trust Jesus for our salvation, but the Bible also says that he forgets them. I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more, Jeremiah 31, 34. You see, God is able to blot out our sins so completely it is if they had never existed. And so the psalmist declares to us, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us in Psalm 103.12. So I submit to you that if we really understand the gospel... If we really begin to unpack and apply in our lives how complete that forgiveness is, that inevitably this will lead us to have a greater appreciation for what God has done, and so therefore a humility and a greater love for God, and that we will then be able to not simply forgive ourselves or really realize our forgiveness, But then we can, in that same humility, begin to forgive others and begin to love others. And so this is sort of the the thesis statement. Forgiveness is the key to unlocking our potential to love like God calls us to love. Forgiveness is the key to unlocking our potential to love like God calls us to love. And so this morning, that's what I want us to take a look at together in the hopes, again, that it's not just about information and it's not just about Scripture and it's not just about memorizing Scripture, but those things are good, but it's about application and transformation. It's about changed heart. It's about walking in freedom. Amen? Father, we come to you this morning. Father, and again, we ask that you help us to just settle down that you keep our focus upon you, God, not on what we need to do or we, what we didn't do, but help us to be present here and now. Father, we pray that this word go forward. Empower, God, in your power. That the power of your word provide freedom, provide breakthrough, provide reconciliation and restoration. Father, in some cases, maybe there's this forgiveness that goes back generations, God. And Father, let us not leave here the same way we came in. But in the name of Jesus, let us be different. 
In his name we pray. Amen. Okay, so the last statement I made, forgiveness is the key to unlocking our potential to love like God calls us to love. If the scriptures say that those of us who are forgiven much love much, then that would mean that if we don't love much or if we don't love well, that we we haven't been forgiven a lot. And we know that we've all been forgiven a lot. So the point is, do we realize that? Do we understand that? Is that life changing? And so 2 Corinthians 5, I want to look at verse 17 through 19. It says, therefore, if, that's a condition, if anyone is in Christ, he is a a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. Doesn't say we're, we're a slightly improved version of our former selves, but it says we're entirely a different creature. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creature. The old things have passed away. They're gone. They no longer exist. If only the devil likes to remind you of your past. And you've probably heard the saying, if the devil continues to remind you of your past, remind him of his future. You know, the strategy of the enemy remains the same. He causes us to question our identity. Who are we? That's what he does with Jesus, and that's what he does with us. He convinces us that rather than a redeemed child of God, that we are our past sins. The scripture continues, all these things are from God. They're not from us. There's nothing we did. There's nothing we can do. Verse 18, now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ, and who gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Doesn't say gave pastors or gave ministers or gave priests. It says gave us, believers, those who have been reconciled are now called to be agents of reconciliation. Verse 19, namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. You see, this will speak to different people in different places because some of us continue to be reminded of our past sins. Some of us continue to allow our trespasses to be used against us in direct opposition to what Scripture teaches. That's like saying Jesus' sacrifice wasn't enough to cover your sin. I was sharing the other day with somebody, I remember sitting down in a seminary class, and I remember the professor saying, despite what you may think, nobody in here has invented a new way to sin. Because we all tend to think that our sin is is particularly ugly, and it is, but his blood is sufficient to cover that sin. The word reconcile is, it's based on a group of Greek words, and the, the meaning common to them is to change or to exchange. So reconciliation involves a change in a relationship between God and man and between man and man. Now this assumes that there has been a breakdown in a relationship, but now there's been a change from a state of enmity and fragmentation to one of harmony and fellowship. 
Some of us still live as though we're in shame, as though we're naked, as though we're afraid, as though we're still in enmity with God instead of in fellowship with him and with one another. You see, the power of the cross is that we move from enemies to friends, from unforgiveness to forgiveness, from death to life, from a state of guilty to one of innocence. Matthew 6, 12, and we said it again and again and again, particularly if you grew up Catholic, but the, the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. How often do we pray the prayer? How often do we repeat the words? You see, Christianity is not supposed to be a life of memorized and often repeated phrases, but it's one of lived out truths. I'll say that again. Christianity is not supposed to just be a life of memorized and repeated phrases, but one of lived out truths. And so continuing in Matthew 6, verse 14, for if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. And then look at this. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. How many of us just gloss over that part? Maybe put a little asterisk, we'll highlight, we'll have to go back to that. That can't mean what it seems to mean. You see, when we fail to forgive, we sin. And when we sin, we erect a barrier between ourselves and God through which his love and mercy cannot flow. We tend to think that being forgiven by God and forgiving others are two separate things, but they're not. In fact, Scripture makes clear again and again that God's forgiveness of our sins seems to hinge on our forgiving others, of our living out that forgiveness. That we're not only reconciled, but now we're reconcilers. Are we wondering why we cannot love well when we are living unforgiven? Now there's only one possible way, there's only one reason why that we would live as those not forgiven, and that's pride. And here, sadly, is an indictment. Here's a perfect example of the problem with what the church becomes if we are not careful. If we do not understand how helpless we were and how helpless we are without the forgiveness and the new life that comes from and in Jesus. Luke 7, verse 36. Now one of the Pharisees was requesting him to dine with him. And he entered the Pharisee's house and he reclined at the table. And there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. And when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and kept wiping them with the hair of her head and kissing his feet and anointing them with perfume. Now when the Pharisees who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. Verse 40, and Jesus answered, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he replied, say it, teacher. A moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50 
When they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, you have judged correctly. You see, Jesus had to tell this story. He had to teach a truth that should be obvious. But the religious experts always seem to miss the most basic of things. And so in verse 41, turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he is forgiven, little loves little. Then he said to her, your sins have been forgiven. Those who were reclining at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this man who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. It's powerful stuff. You know what Jesus is saying here? You see, Simon is is the name of this Pharisee who invited Jesus to his home to have dinner. Now, we don't know a lot of details about why he invited Jesus to come to his home. But what we do know for sure is that he was rude to Jesus. What we do know for sure is that he didn't extend to him even the most common courtesies that normally would be afforded to guests in the home. He didn't wash his feet. He didn't greet him with a kiss. He didn't offer him any refreshing oil after traveling in the sun. These are all normal courtesies. Another thing we do know about Simon is that he wasn't sure Jesus was a prophet, much less the Messiah. Best speculation about why Simon invited Jesus to his home is that perhaps he did it because he enjoyed the company of of well-known, of celebrities, and he had heard so much about Jesus that he wanted to meet with him and talk to him on, on an informal basis. Maybe he wanted to impress his colleagues in his community by having this well-known person in his home. You see, it was common in that day for a wealthy person to allow the public to stand around the open courtyard and to listen to the discussions happening there, especially if this was an important person, a dignitary, a chief guest in the home. Or perhaps it was out of hostility that Simon invited Jesus. G. Campbell Morgan wrote, Simon invited Jesus into his home to see if he could catch him doing something that he could seize upon. And sure enough, Jesus did. He let a sinful woman touch him, something that a prophet was not supposed to do. Leave it to the religious folks. Leave it to the church folks to point out how sinful everybody else is. And then we have this unnamed woman, known in the town as a sinful woman, probably a prostitute, well-known. Everything she did in her encounter with Jesus was totally and completely and amazingly scandalous. You ever get to the point where you're so broken that you don't even care what's going on around you? 
It's all just background noise. You don't care what people see or what people say because you're so broken and you're so desperate that it just doesn't matter anymore. That image, that, that, that trying to hold it together, that trying to keep the mask on, it just doesn't matter anymore. You're not worried about it. This is the, the crying out. The, you know, no pretension, not the, the polite little cry with the tears. This is the lay down cry, snot bubbles coming out of your nose, ugly crying, right? She came from the slums to the suburbs. She represented the red light district and Simon represented the country club crowd. She budged into this home as an uninvited guest and she touched Jesus and she cried her tears onto his feet. Everything she did was wrong, loosening her hair and unwinding it. This was forbidden in public. And in fact, and we're not going to get too much into it, but her giving up her most prized possession, this alabaster jar of perfume, that's symbolic that it was likely she meant it was, she was giving up her past life, that she was leaving her past in the past. This woman was deep in sin, and Simon was deep in his own self-righteousness. And as a result, this woman was desperate for forgiveness. And, he, and she knew it. Simon was equally desperate for forgiveness, but he didn't know. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 tells us that Satan has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel. And so at this point in his life, Simon was still blind to the light of the gospel that was standing right in front of him. But this woman, she was determined to see Jesus when all Simon worried about was how he would look in front of everybody else. You see, if you're here and you're remembering all of your past sins and you think that you can never be forgiven, if you're unable to let go of your past and you keep living in regrets, you need to get to the place like this woman where you're not worried about what people think. You're not worried about what, what everyone's going to say and what everyone's going to do and what you're going to look like. You're just going to come to Jesus for your full pardon and the peace and the freedom that comes with it. You see, there's two types of sorrow. And you've heard me preach before. Most of the time, we're not sorry for our sin. We're sorry for the results of our sin. We're sorry for the, for the uncomfortability or for getting caught. We're not sorry because we, we've offended a holy God. But 2 Corinthians 7.10 says, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. We're not talking about a pity party and wallowing in your misery and woe is me. I'm never going to be different. I always do the same thing. We're talking about breaking through to get a fresh touch from Jesus that will change your life. And now if you're here and you're harboring resentment and unforgiveness, then you don't fully understand how much you yourself have been forgiven. Matthew 18, verse 21, Then Peter came to Jesus and asked him, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? 
up to seven times? And Jesus answered, I tell you not seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. And so the servant's master took pity on him, and he canceled the debt, and he let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. And he grabbed him, and he began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. And his fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me, and I will pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off, and he had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. And when the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and they went and told their master everything that had happened. Verse 32, then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all that he owed. Verse 35 said this, This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. From your heart. Not just with words. Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven? No, not seven, but 70 times seven. So since forgiveness is not the norm... I think perhaps the best way for us to truly understand what forgiveness is is to remind ourselves what it is not. Because particularly Christians, I think a lot of times they don't understand, we don't understand what forgiveness is. One thing forgiveness is, it's not forgetting. God forgets our sins. He has that ability. We don't. When people hurt us deeply, we can't forget it and wipe it from our minds. Colossians 3.13 literally says, keep on forgiving one another. Because forgiveness is a continuing process. And so I think this is what Jesus meant when he told Peter that we're forgive not seven times, but 70 times seven. That forgiveness is something we need to do over and over. It's not forgetting. In some cases, it's more to do with remembering. Forgiveness is also not always reconciliation. I'm talking about with people now. Reconciliation takes two people. But an injured party can forgive an offender without reconciliation. Which means that you can forgive somebody even if they don't ask for it or even if they don't want to be forgiven. You're forgiving somebody isn't conditional on whether or not they want you to forgive them. I know that's kind of a convenient excuse well, I would forgive them, I would release them, but they don't, they've really never asked for forgiveness. That's not a qualifier in Scripture. We can forgive someone even if they don't want to be forgiven. Sometimes people should no longer be in our lives. Forgiveness doesn't mean that the relationships are the same. Sometimes it's not healthy for certain people to be in your life. I've dealt with a lot of situations, particularly in counseling, 
where Christians felt you know, guilty because for some reason somebody was no longer in their life and they felt that to forgive that person meant necessarily that they, that they you know, continued in a relationship. That's not what that means. Forgiveness is also not condoning or dismissing bad behavior. Forgiveness is not saying what you did wasn't that bad or that it was bad, but it doesn't matter anymore. In fact, if, if something didn't matter, forgiveness wouldn't be needed in the first place. Forgiveness involves taking the offense seriously, not passing it off as inconsequential. Forgiveness acknowledges an act as being wrong and forgives it anyway. You see, there's a great deal of grace in the act of us forgiving somebody. In fact, the word forgive is built around the root word give, which should tell us that it's undeserved like a gift. Forgiveness is also not a pardon. A pardon is a legal transaction that releases an offender from the consequences of an action. But as Lewis Smedes writes, you can forgive a person and still insist on a just punishment for an offense. You see, forgiveness is not easy. It's extremely difficult. In fact, without God, it's impossible. This is just one of the the side effects of our sinful state of being. Forgiveness, forgiving someone seems to go against our very grain. Elizabeth O'Connor says this, despite a hundred sermons on forgiveness, we do not forgive easily, nor find ourselves easily forgiven. Forgiveness, we discover, is always hotter than the sermons make it out to be. We have to work at forgiveness. We were away at, a, at the conference a couple weeks ago in Florida. And if I'm honest with myself, I, I was going through some, some issues. I was frustrated with somebody, and I was not really in a place where I wanted to forgive. Can I be honest? I was with the guys, and I was, I was harboring a little resentment. I didn't want to forgive for a whole host of reasons. And this gentleman stood up and he shared, this gentleman by the name of, of Pastor Anthony. And, and he tells the story of, of his wife staying up the night before and having all this, this stuff spread out on the dining room table because she was working on a Bible study she was doing. And after just countless hours, it just wasn't, wasn't enough. And, and it just painted a picture of the kind of woman that she was. And it reminded me kind of of my wife. You know, that, you know just more preparation and more preparation because she wants it to be the best. And she wants to make sure that the people that are, that are responding, that are hearing this Bible study, that, that there's an impact. And she wants to do everything she can to make sure she fully gives herself. And so this, this guy shared that this is, this is his wife and this is what she was doing, staying up all night preparing for this Bible study that she was volunteering to give. And so the next day she had gone and, and she was at the Bible study in, in South Carolina when a young man by the name of Dylan Roof who was sitting in the Bible study began shooting and killed, I believe, a dozen people, including that woman that had stayed up the night before, pouring her heart out to do a Bible study for people, some that she knew and some that she didn't. 
And so he shared about his just being completely broken and just, just falling to the ground and just not, not being able to, you know, just wanting to give up everything. I, you know, not wanting to be a minister anymore and not wanting, you know, how could this happen to his wife who, who's serving God? Because that's kind of an unwritten rule. Like when you serve God, it's like this unwritten rule that, God, you're going to protect me and my family and we're going to serve you. So when this happens, this isn't fair. And so he shares the story that in his, you know, in his fall down, snot bubble, ugly crying, he just felt the Lord saying, get up. You can't stay here. And within, I think it was a week or two, he found himself in the courtroom uh, standing face to face with this young man who had just killed his wife. And he said he told this young man that he forgave him. He told him that his life was never going to be the same as a result of the choice he made, but that he hoped that he repents and he makes his peace with God. He forgave this young man. And that's the kind of forgiveness that's not just lip service. That's forgiveness with his heart. And put, putting that in light of my little frustration just made it all seem so absurd the things we hold grudges for the places we demand justice when God has shown us so much mercy time and again you see one of Jesus annoying commandments and he's got annoying ones is when he says this in Matthew 5 verse 43 and 44 you have heard it said love your neighbor and hate your enemy Yes, Jesus, I've heard that said. It sounds good to me. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. You see, the reality is that Christians are called to live a radical kind of society. We're called to love and to forgive as Christ loves and forgives. And I know that it's impossible. But we're called to do it anyway. And with him, all things are possible. And really, what's the alternative? I'll tell you what it is. The alternative is actually missing out on the grace of God. Hebrews 12, 15 says this, See to it that no one misses the grace of God, and that no bitter root causes, grows to cause trouble and to defile many. You see, the alternative is that you live your life and you miss the great grace of God because bitterness has taken root. Because we said again and again and again, it's not about information, it's about transformation. If you, in humility, don't recognize your need for the Lord daily, the alternative is you're stuck in the world system. Yes, for that forgiveness may have to some degree released that young man or, or it may not have, but it certainly re- released the husband rather than live in anger and in bondage. Are you connected to the living water? What are you rooted into? Are you abiding in Christ or are there roots of bitterness in your heart? Roots of unforgiveness looking to see who's wronged you and who owes you instead of understanding how much grace you've been shown. You see, the Pharisees had biblical knowledge. 
Church folks always have the right knowledge, but their hearts were hard. And so they were filled with judgment and condemnation rather than grace and mercy and love for the people of God. In John 5, verse 39 through 40, Jesus says this, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you may have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness to me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. You see, people continue to try and use a religious system as an alternative to coming to Jesus. This is now and has always been the great strategy of the enemy. The ongoing delusion of works-based righteousness. And the result of being rooted in a system of ongoing judgments of comparisons and self-sufficiency will always lead to arrogance. You see, roots, roots absorb and they store. And in some hearts are stored hurt and anger and hatred and thoughts of revenge. The Bible says that real love keeps no records of wrongs. But we know that human bitterness keeps detailed accounts. In his book, What's So Amazing About Grace, Philip Yancey writes that unforgiveness plays like a background static of life for families and for nations and for institutions. Unforgiveness is sadly our natural human state. We nurse sores and we go to elaborate lengths to rationalize our behavior, to perpetuate family feuds, to punish ourselves and to punish others all to avoid the most unnatural act of forgiving. In our society, in our family, sometimes even in our churches, real forgiveness is almost non-existent. And so the alternative to forgiveness and freedom is the unmerciful servant, the pharisaical heart which robs you of peace and of joy. You see, the whole message of reconciliation is centered around the love of God and the death of Christ. And Paul is quick to remind us that God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. We weren't getting better. We weren't polishing ourselves up. We didn't pick ourselves up by the bootstraps. God didn't look at us and see potential. We were dead in our sin. And Christ died for us. And that's what brings us peace with God. That's what brings us access to God through Christ. That's what allows us to rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. You see, this sinful woman gives us a beautiful picture of what it takes to come to Jesus to be saved and to walk in that salvation. First, we see there is a conviction of sin. This woman was convicted of her sin. She knew she needed the forgiveness that only Jesus could give her. So a conviction of sin needs to lead to a come to Jesus moment. And despite all the, the, the everything stacked against her, despite the odds against her, she knew she needed this forgiveness. And so she broke, she broke all convention. She didn't care what was what was 
proper and appropriate, and she barged into this house party, which she would immediately be judged. She had been judged her whole life. But she finally got to the place where the conviction of sin and coming to Jesus led her to cry out to Jesus in brokenness. And from there she made a commitment to Jesus. She committed herself to him. When we're convicted, we must come to Jesus, we must cry out to Jesus, and then we must commit our lives to Jesus. You see, this woman was not going to let her past sins keep her from coming to Jesus, and you shouldn't either. It doesn't matter how awful those sins are. This woman didn't let her present condition keep her from coming to Jesus. And if you are already saved, then remember you must not let your present situation keep you from repentance. Keep you from this cycle of repent and then walk in obedience. No matter what you're doing right now in your life, no matter what you're involved with right now in your life, you don't get your life right and then come to Jesus. I read it said you don't clean a fish before you catch it. This woman was not about to let people's opinions keep her from coming to Jesus, and you shouldn't either. Or maybe you're realizing that you've been like Simon. Maybe you've looked down on others. And so maybe you haven't loved well because you have unforgiveness towards others. Because you fail to fully understand what you yourself have been forgiven of. And so I want to remind you of this truth as well. That Jesus loved Simon as much as he loved the sinful woman. That Jesus loves you. And so will you repent with me of any unforgiveness? Will you commit with me to live according to Ephesians 4, verse 31 through 32? Which is get rid of all bitterness, all rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ, God forgave you. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up, and we're going to close with a song, How Great Thou Art, that we've sang and we've heard countless times. And we know that that God is great, but let this not just be a song that we sing. Let it be worship. Let it be a prayer. Let it be in reverence. And I want you to take an honest assessment. I want you to prayerfully consider in your life right now, are you holding on to bitterness, to unforgiveness? Are you unable to fully receive the forgiveness that God has for you because you just keep reminding yourself of your past as if Jesus' sacrifice wasn't enough? Don't leave this place the same way you came in, in bondage and in conflict. You see, if as the redeemed people of God, we can't live out lives where where true forgiveness takes place, where we're able to release people, where we're able to let go and forgive. If we can't do that here, what hope is there? 
please stand. Father, we ask that you, even now, God, that you search our hearts. Father, we know that this is, this is a difficult word. This is a challenging word. This is not easy to hear, and it's certainly not easy to do. But yet you've called us to live radical lives. We thank you for your grace and your mercy, for your forgiveness in our lives, God. Help us to not be like the Pharisees. Help us to not miss the mercy and the grace of God in our lives. Father, I pray that you search our hearts and you bring to our attention those areas where we need to forgive, those areas where we need to release, whether that's others or, or whether that's forgiving ourselves, God, understanding and recognizing that you don't remember our sins anymore that they're not written down so you can bring them up and indict us like the world does, God, but that you've forgotten them. Help us to understand truly the adequacy of the cross. For that we are so grateful. In Jesus' name, amen.